Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books Network Gender Studies Podcast. My name is Taylor Fox-Smith and today I have the pleasure of sharing my Australian accent with an extraordinary historian, Dr Liz Connor, author of Skin Deep, Settler Impressions of Aboriginal Women. In an activist application of her scholarly discipline, Skin Deep acknowledges its dual potential to disturb and to incite a reckoning, giving life to Audre Lorde's famous quote that the learning process is something to be incited, like a riot, Using travelogues, cartoon strips, missionary diaries, paintings and lithographs, just to name a few, Dr. Connor's consultation of a vast colonial archive challenges the amnesia in our national record and, accordingly, the racism and misogyny of our cultural imaginary. Recreating the settler colonial imaginary and the tropes and stereotypes it projected in the imperial enterprise of knowledge production about Aboriginal women, Skin Deep exposes the interlocking oppressions of gender and race that manifest in the 18th, 19th and 20th century. From the innocent native belle to the beaten captive bride, the cannibalistic mother to the barefooted domestic worker, the sexualized metonym of the virginal land to the unsightly malevolent matriarch, the Aboriginal woman was reduced by the settler to a canvas, recklessly painted with the ideologies, expectations and ambitions of the empire, making the Aboriginal woman devastatingly skin deep. Liz Connor, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Hi, Zoe. (laughs) So if you could first of all introduce us to your scholarly journey and the way that it led to you writing Skin Deep. Oh, well, as it is for many people, it was a complete accident. (laughs) Well, I think you have to follow your, your interests. And I actually came out of film theory and... Um, and visual culture and always was, uh, I guess, a visual historian and, um, and had worked with cartoons before and realised that my archive was really print and decided that I should actually sort of formalise that. So this book I wrote more self-consciously as a print historian um, and, I mean, I also came out of – I did film studies – I was led into it through women's studies, so I was always writing as a feminist, um, a, a feminist cultural historian. And so um, I realised in writing the PhD where there's a chapter on, um, you know, the anomaly of Aboriginal women in modern or in modernity or in representations of the modern girl and realised that, that not a lot of work had been done around, well, in fact, there wasn't really a, a, a complete survey of representations of Aboriginal women. So that's what I wanted to do with this book. And I had the support of an ARC discovery, which was um, indispensable, and then it took a long time because I had little girls. <laughs> well, I suppose we'll just jump straight into the book then and start with the first chapter. And one of the things that really struck me throughout the book, but something that you really 
platform off from the first chapter is a meticulous use of the historical archive and reviews of the book rave about the use of the historical archive. But what this does is it represents the imperial project as not only this material pillaging of the native custodians of Australia, but also one of destruction through knowledge production, particularly Mm -hmm. as in the way that the coloniser conceptualised the colonised. And Mm -hmm. your book unravels this process with a really fascinating term called cultural captioning, And the way that the white settlers executed this cultural captioning, not only through derogatory names, but also through larger tropes and stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was kind of this process of not only naming, but representing. Mm -hmm. And one of the earliest of these was the native bell as a counterpart to the masculine noble savage. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if, with all that in mind, if you could kind of give us a bit of an insight into those early interactions and, and how that native bell trope came about, what, where was its um, origin story, particularly as it applies uh, to early conceptions of Aboriginal womanhood? Mm. Well, these sort of types and tropes are flying around the globe, really, from the exploratory voyages to the Americas. So, you know, the idea that, um, you know, America was... Um, was this virginal land and um, sort of sort of sexually access, accessible and ripe for ripe for exploitation was very clear in imagery associated with the very first um, voyages and the images that came out of Thomas de Brie's um, uh, you know sort of fifteenth century uh, engravings so that that was kind of a, an inceptional moment and the native bell or the idea that part of the spoils of colonialism and expansion and incursion was unfettered sexual access to to a type of womanhood that was open-thighed and and uh, you know so so promiscuous and so outside of of European mores that she was you know, that men had would have unfettered access to her. And this was a kind of fantasy. It's, it's present in the mutiny of the bounty. Um, in fact, there were much more complex systems of, of exchange and prostitution and a whole bunch of things going on. Um, but the Native Bell, um, I guess what I mean by cultural captioning is that by the time we had the exploratory voyages to uh, Australia and the incursion of the first fleet, um, the conventions in imagery are so well established um, that they sort of come to our shores ready-made, if you like, and uh, as soon as we kind of see the sort of standing naked or semi-dressed figure of the young woman, pre-maternal usually, um, it invokes all of those established conventions that have been going, you know, circulating around the globe for centuries. So quite a lot of it's ready-made, I guess, is what I mean by cultural captioning. I'm talking about the conventions and the imagery that means that a caption isn't really necessary anymore. We have the, prim- the native bell, we have the, the, the primitive woman who's um, profligate and licentious, uh, and that there are these essential traits associated with her and her body and her sexuality, and they're well entrenched by the time we have, you know, settlement 
or invasion in Australia. I would like to expand on that just a little bit further as well. In that chapter, you also mentioned the role of London's print media in taking these pre-made tropes, if you like, and applying them to Australia, but also then expanding that application by widespread understandings of Aboriginal women through these tropes. So in terms of how you um, went for a historical archive or knew where to look and then found new places to look, I'm wondering if you could expand on that print culture, like how was it that these tropes were applied in the Australian context? Well, I guess the thing to know about is the, about print culture through this era, era from, you know, incursion through to, say, federation, or really the book looks at incursion through to the 67 referendum. So I guess, I guess the thing to keep in mind at all times when you're kind of ploughing through this archive is the way it changed dramatically over this time. So the coincidence of colonialism and and um, industrialised print. So I guess really what I wanted to say was, um, you know, these, these very early industrialised, um, uh, mechanised forms, so we had particularly print and the loom is the other thing, and travel. And, you know, when you think about sheep and, uh, you know, the massive expansion into Victoria, of wool that then fed the mills, so there's that, and then, we, you know, this particular, they're all, you know, steam, and then we have steam travel, and then we have um, print and um, the steam press. Then we see, you know, just a massive kind of shift in um, meanings and patterns of meanings of Aboriginal Aboriginality being circulated through these technologies. So it's more than just a coincidence. We're actually now talking about enabling technologies of colonialism. I mean, they're really foundational and, um, you know, causal to to the impetus, the, 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 the hopes and dreams of settlers, um, particularly with sheep and wool. Um, the expansion is um, indelibly imprinted or woven into these technologies. So steam is critically important. And, of course, you know, something we have to reflect on today is that is that steam is coal, basically. And so really colonialism is coal-onialism. And it's critically important given the, you know, the, the kind of associated destruction of Indigenous homes that's still going on to see that continuity of coal through those technologies, those enabling technologies of colonialism, but more elementally as part of the techno, you know, the, the very means by which people were able to get here um, en masse. And that's the other thing about steam I'll just quickly say is it's not, it's not as if people weren't, you know, travelling around. It's not as if people weren't... Um, uh, reproducing or copying or making copies in terms of print. It's not as though people weren't weaving. All of these things were happening prior to industrialization. But what you have with steam is just the, the sheer mass of it. And that's what becomes important because the argument of the book is about reiteration. So it's a kind of critical mass of repetition that entrenches meaning until it becomes unquestioned truth. 
I think two key words coming out of that that will apply to this next question when we talk about chapters two and three are enabling and repetition. So I'll start with the enabling point. So (laughs) chapters two and three really looked at the way that these tropes enabled the colonizer imaginary to justify their agenda. And there's this really interesting point that you make about how they serve to almost abdicate the responsibility of the colonizer in a process that inverts the colonial cause and effect such that the Aboriginal woman became the cause of her own demise as, as opposed to what we now know to be true, which was the colonial project being as destructive as it was. Mm. And chapters yep. two and three bring to the fore two tropes, so the bride capture trope and the infanticide trope. And the infanticide trope, funnily enough, plays into your point here about repetition in that the mm. print media and various other forms of media that were enabled by this project repeated mm. a fabricated story, if you like, a colonial fake news um (laughs) that's what it was look how far back it goes trump would have loved it exactly so (laughs) he would he would have tweeted it (laughs) so i think that what i would love to firstly ask is about the capture bride trope and the way that you talk about the settler gallantry ideology um Mm. I suppose I'll leave it there and get you to elaborate on on both the trope and the settler gallantry ideology um, and how that played into that chapter for you. Okay, so, all right, well, then let's start with Chapter 2 and the bride capture trope. And so in terms of inverting the causality of colonialism, what we have with with bride capture trope is... um, Really, not just it's not just about women being Aboriginal women being um, brutalized by their overlords, but actually something else is being said about Aboriginal masculinity and the the kind of lack of governance in the property of Aboriginal men, namely women, which was then extrapolated to their property over land. And so this becomes a kind of a way to think of um, a, a kind of Aboriginal man as already dispossessed because he actually didn't own anything. And what he did own was taken ad hoc. It was um, never formalised through marriage rights. Um, this was just a brutal impulse of the horde um, uh, acting, you know, on a kind of a... Um, not so much libidinal because Aboriginal men, unlike, you know, African slaves, you know, weren't, you know, hypersexualized because they were, their, their kind of lack of, lack of virility was part of the cul-de-sac of race destiny for Aboriginal people, that they, that they weren't procreate, they weren't, you know, procreating. So it's not so much about sex really as just so much the, the kind of impulse to bash women over the head and drag them off by the hair. So, you know, the, you might then get that there were frightful screams, but there isn't a sort of detailing around rape in the same way as there might be with the kind of ideology of the African slave and his assaults on white women. Anyway, so... Um, uh, that's the kind of that does establish a kind of um, justification for incursion because merely by being uh, 
in these places where these things were happening, um, they tended to desist purely by the presence <laughs> of gentlemen in the bush and the example that they set, ha-ha, meant that, uh, meant that practices like, you know, uh, bride capture, for which there's no proof, and infanticidal cannibalism, for which there's no proof, um, uh, were able to, you know, take hold and just and go and repeat without being ever challenged. And that's how we really see an entrenchment of, of meaning that becomes unquestioned truth. Um, so then we move on to infanticidal cannibalism, this extremely pernicious um, trope of the Aboriginal mother as um, cannibalistic of their newborns, basically, as eating their newborns. Um, and, and what we see here is, again, a kind of alibi for the massive child mortality that's, that's sweeping, um, sweeping the frontier and the, and the frontier's aftermath through disease um, and particularly, it seems, syphilis, um, but a whole bunch of other diseases too, whooping cough, measles. Um, and we see this inversion of causality, as you say, which is really uh, Marguerite Stephan's um, term when she talks about in her study of um, infanticide. She um, she sees exactly this kind of this kind of what I call an alibi around incursion or invasion or the frontier, the massive loss of life. You know, something like two thirds over a generation. On most, in most sort of frontier scenarios. Um, and that this is partly to do with Aboriginal maternity, which is insufficiently fecund, which is a cul-de-sac for the, for, in terms of race destiny, um, that, is, that fails to pr reproduce uh, the, the, the rising generation um, and therefore is part of the extinguishment of, or the, you know, the kind of the dying race theory, the, the kind of natural extinguishment where um, where the primitive race just kind of withers and melts and disappears um, once they're, you know, once they've so much as laid eyes on the superior white European. So there's a lot going on in those tropes and it serves a lot of different kind of ends really. So I think before we move on to Chapter 4, I've made here a note that what came across to me was this idea that male observers, the male settler imaginary, played a role in constructing womanhood and femininity mm -hmm. by reflecting their own masculinity upon it. So kind of in the iterations of imperial domination, the process mm -hmm. of knowledge production continually reverted back to the hegemonic masculinity of the settler observer. And mm -hmm. one of the lenses which they used um, to look at these women was also the lens of domesticity. So a traditional realm of womanhood in the Western European ideal. And chapter four deals with this realm of domesticity. So after looking at chapter two and three, it becomes apparent that the settler imaginary is constructing Aboriginal womanhood through familiar frames of reference. So the captive bride trope plays into this understanding of the woman as wife. And then the infanticide trope plays into this understanding of um, the maternal instincts of the woman, the, the role of the mother. 
And in chapter four, we get into this really interesting realm of domesticity and the way that Aboriginal womanhood not only penetrated that realm, um, which was the quintessential place of the European woman settler in Australia, but also the way in which that particular um, penetration of that realm was understood in imagery and in textual reference um, by the foot of the Aboriginal woman and the creation of this caricature. And I'm wondering if you could um, explain for us not only the implications of that caricature, but the symbolism and what we can read into that in terms of how Aboriginal womanhood was constructed on the homestead. Um, well, quite a bit of work has been done on Aboriginal uh, domestic workers, particularly by um, historian Victoria Haskins, and she has already looked at um, the threshold, as as actually has Fiona Paisley. The threshold is a really important cross-cultural realm of, um, of, of interaction, and um, I was mindful of that as I was looking at you know, one of the key organising frameworks for by which women were, you know, perceived in Europe. And you're quite right, we talked about um, sexuality, so marriage, um, maternity, um, and, and then domesticity, and, of course, the other ones are appearance. Um, so with domesticity, um, I, thought, I thought this was really these were really important insights of Victoria's and Fiona's and other historians. And um, they were in my thinking as I was looking through a series of cartoons that I actually had um, sourced when I was researching my PhD, looking through 1920s um, newspapers and magazines. And I just noticed that the Aboriginal, that the feet of Aboriginal women were were always represented as outsized, as splayed, as unable to be, you know, shod almost. There's a sort of something being said there about um, something something untamable about Aboriginal women, despite them, um, you know, performing, you know, the critical labour around the homestead and, and mm-hmm. indeed in, in white urban homes. And, um, and it is indeed, um, you know, I think I end up talking about Aboriginal women's comportment, and it contrasts with the idea of the of the native bill and her grace. And you see that reiterated quite a bit that that Aboriginal women are actually and men well men had particular bearing when they stood. You know, you could hang, hang a plum plumb line from the, between their shoulders and it would hit the ground. They they stood so straight, they were so erect, and they had such proud bearing. Um, something was said about Aboriginal women a lot was their comportment and that they had a particular grace to their movements. Um, and so around the home, once there's these demands on sartorial codes and the mother harboured print dress on the, on the homestead, and this is really the stereotype, um, something gets lost there with this notion of... Um, an authentic native women's comportment that's unusually graceful and instead it gets replaced by these outsized, very ungrateful, ungraceful feet. And thinking also at this time around the 1920s when these cartoons were really at their height in newspapers like Beckett's Budget and 
um, Smith Weekly and the Bulletin by cartoonists like Hugh McLean and Ian Gill and um, um, B.E. Minns. Um, but something is being said there, I think, about something that's unassimilable to modernity, to domesticity, um, something that's unsightly. Um, and it's at the very time in the 1920s, in the interwar period, when women, white women, are, very, are wearing very close-toed shoes, mm-hmm. so much that there was a big boom in the corn pad market. <laughs> you, see, you see white women's shoes being advertised right alongside is, is an ad for corn pads. So, um, so something very interesting is happening with women's feet at this time. And I do think that, that, that you know, if you want to think about it in a bigger context in this, the, the bigger, you know, the, the increase of, of women's presence and visibility, particularly middle-class women's presence and visibility in the city and the whole kind of typology that goes on, on there around the city girl, the business girl, the flapper. Um, and then you put that against... Um, you know, what's being said about Aboriginal women and their comportment, and that is that they're really sitting on their feet, they're sitting in history, they're not going anywhere, um, and they're crossing these thresholds um, with with feet that are almost an encumbrance rather than anything else, and with feet that can only be thought of as, you know, as they're, because they're unshod, they're bare, bringing dirt into the home. Um, it, it's a very, very nasty trope and it is repeated again and again in these cartoons i think um the comment you made before about the shoes that white women were wearing is there's this Mm -hmm. quite poignant image you have in the book which i'll try and explain for listeners where we're situated in a kitchen i can't remember if it's a photograph or or a cartoon and (laughs) i know and the woman is in the kitchen with these beautiful stiletto shoes and juxtaposed to an Aboriginal woman who looks as though she works in the home um, with the European woman whose bare feet are placed on the ground. And there almost mm. seemed to be this message of um, the connection between the Aboriginal woman and the land. Like there seemed to be a dialogue about... Um, the imposition of the white woman on the land through this medium of the shoe, almost separating her from from the land, whereas the Aboriginal woman had this intimacy with the ground that um, mm. was, yeah, it was quite quite a poignant juxtaposition between the two of them. Yeah, uh, well, I think that's a, a very interesting and very creative reading, Taylor, that we might do now. Um, but I think potentially something, you know, and something unwittingly is being sort of expressed in that particular photograph. Um, the white woman is in these, as you described, these white sky-high stilettos. She, her hair's sort of wrapped in a sort of, a, you know, interwar turban kind of do and standing off almost in the dark, in the, you know, in the back of the image are two women in Mother Hubbard frocks um, and bare feet and, and they're holding tea towels. And they look like they're very similar-looking girls. They look like they might even be twins. Um, and I wonder if what's, you know, not intended but sort of what's assumed is going on there is a kind of master. I mean, it's a, it's a beaten earth floor. So, you know, there's another very similar image of um, Elsa Chevelle standing with a land woman. What's the expression? A landlady mm-hmm. in... Uh, Copenhagen, uh, sorry, Copenhagen, uh, Cooper Beattie. Yes. <laughs> standing, and they're standing on the threshold and they're wearing these very ridiculous 
sandals and they're standing literally in rubble. They're stand, standing on the, you know, on the kind of um, broken ground that's very, very rough and mm-hmm. they really wear hiking boots again. <laughs> and there they are. And, and, and this particular woman um, had gone to extraordinary lengths to, to maintain a certain domestic respectability and that has to be conveyed not only in dress but but in the in the um, you know the organisation of the home and and um, the cleanliness and the ornamentation and all of those things. I mean, a certain white womanhood is being performed that we do. I think we do have to just for a moment consider might have been quite hard to pull off. Mm. But nevertheless, it rested. We have to then say it rested on the labour mostly of Aboriginal women who were unpaid, whose wages are still being claimed. Um, and while they're doing, you know, the, the lion's share of the really hard labour, and as Anne McGrath has shown in her study, um, Born Among the Cattle, um, uh, Aboriginal women were sinking, you know, lamp fence posts, they were digging roads, they were, they were doing more than just, you know, polishing the silver. Um, so while they're doing the hard yards... Um, there, I mean, maybe something is being said there, Taylor, about about the manual labour that they're doing, mm-hmm. and uh, that that was acknowledged, I think, by Bleakley or one of the protectors up up, you know, in the northern states was saying, you know, there there couldn't be any white women living in the north or in these areas because the heat's just too bad, mm. and um and and the you know the, the presence of white women entirely depends on. Um, the labours, the labour of the lubras. Well, I now, think. While, oh, sorry. No, please, please keep going. I will just quickly to finish. While, while all that's going on, these cartoons are, are coming out, which are pretty ungracious when you consider that these women aren't even being paid for doing the lion's share of, of settling, you know, of white people's settlement in the areas. Mm-hmm. I think that that point there about the hard yards that were put in by Aboriginal women. Um, assumedly against their will, and that that isn't an essentializing generalization on generalization on my behalf, but that that labor that went in to creating the frontier of Australia really mm-hmm. comes to the fore in chapter five, and this almost contradictory um, exploitation of the Aboriginal woman, but also the protection of the Aboriginal woman as something of Australia is through this lens of sexuality and the black velvet trope that emerged in this process of eroticizing the other mm-hmm. and how this black velvet trope played out in a public panic about sexual encounters between Japanese pearlers and Aboriginal men. And I think it speaks to a bigger point of the necessity of a gendered lens on um, colonial conquests of the land and the way in which the Indigenous woman was both something to be owned and something to be used and that sexuality in the black velvet trope. I'm wondering if you could talk us through that trope and, and also that public panic and what, why did the Japanese pearlers pose a problem to the national psyche at that point in time? Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're very close up against actually going to war with the Japanese um, at around the time of, in 1936, this flurry of print reports that happened mostly out of the Canberra Times. Um, and... It was um, perhaps one of Australia's first, you know, full-blown print media panics um, 
or scandals uh, around the prostitution of Aboriginal women and girls to black um, pearlers and um, and fishermen. Uh, and I guess the startling thing to consider here is that aside from, you know, pockets of outrage amongst, you know, clergy and missionaries and some humanitarians, there was a, a widespread... Um, a widespread disavowal and disregard, you know, and lack of attention to um, uh, the vulnerability of Aboriginal women and girls on the frontier and in its aftermath. And that's not to say um, that 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 there weren't, there wasn't, as Anne McGrath has said, a spectrum of relationships, and that there weren't, you know, long-term committed. Um, you know, marriages where they were allowed, um, but it is to also um, draw attention to the sexual vulnerability of Aboriginal women and girls. Mm-hmm. And so much so, this this disavowal, I'm certainly not not discounting the, the motivation for for the protection era was principally directed at the protection of of um, of women and girls. So I'm not discounting that either. But but part of what happened with the with the kind of Ah, uh, you know the, the the aphorism "black velvet," um, which was in common use, was that um, was a way to sort of uh, wink and nudge at at this kind of white male imagining of unfettered sexual access to Aboriginal women and girls, partly because they were. Um, they like to imagine being prostituted by their men wholesale, and the other thing was that they were, being, you know, they were primitive, and therefore they were more licentious and mm-hmm. and um, and libidinized. So those were the imaginings going on. So after what 130 years of this, um, we we have this, you know, massive kind of thunderbolt uh, print panic around the prostitution of Aboriginal women and girls to the Japanese and. I guess the point I wanted to make was looking at um, looking at terminology like black velvet and and being more precise about it because it doesn't occur in any of the discussion that goes on around Japanese men mm-hmm. <laughs> having sexual relations with Aboriginal women and across that spectrum. That also is certainly the case as well from you know from from prostitution through to long term you know committed. Uh, relationships and children and so on. So, um, yes. Yeah, so this term doesn't appear, and it and, and as it as it transpires, and I think it's important to note, uh, black velvet was specifically not just about you know an imagining of, of black skin or the genital interior of Aboriginal women and the sort of white male fantasies about that. I'm sorry about the building noise. There's building going on. Just <laughs> you have to bear with me. That's all right. Um, but what's what's very specifically being said when you look at where and when it was used is is a, is a kind of ex, a racial exclusion going on with that term, mm-hmm. and that is that black velvet was actually about white men's imagination of, mm-hmm. of Aboriginal women, and it didn't apply to brown men because there was a really big, really big kind of disavowal, an even bigger disavowal about brown men, or Asian men, or yellow men. Um, having sexual relationships with Aboriginal women. Suddenly, after 130 years of, of um, you know, various initiatives but widespread, you know, disavowal and, and um, apathy, mm-hmm. suddenly um, within weeks of, of this kind of exposure from a story that one of the reporters did with um, Father Gezel, 
um, on one of the Northern Islands. Um, bang, it just, it really just sort of took off and within weeks uh, shots were being fired over the, over the, you know, the bows of Japanese pearlers. Um, I think our crew was detained in Sydney and um, this is around the time of the Caledon Bay, um, you know, um, uh, uh, violence that was going on there and, mm-hmm. and, um, the anthropologist um, up in the north there leading a um, concerted um, campaign to put down, you know, proposals for um, uh, um, for, for you know for an indiscriminate kind of um, assault on the Aboriginal people in the area. Mm-hmm. Dispersion. Um, they were still being called and this particular anthropologist got involved in that. So there's a lot of things going on in this particular moment and it's just very interesting to see how Aboriginal women's sexuality gets gets kind of considered or expressed or fantasised about in relation to white men as distinct from black men. Mm. I think that's what I was trying to do there, yeah. Well, I think that as we move then from Chapter 5 to Chapter 6, it becomes quite clear to the reader that this book is moving through somewhat of a life cycle and that life cycle intersects with so many different issues that Australia in its nation-building phases faces in that foundational relationship between the settler and the traditional custodians of the land. And so we've looked at the Aboriginal, Aboriginal woman through the eyes of the settler in familiar frames such as the bride, the mother, the homemaker, the matriarch. And in this final chapter, we look at the way that elderly Aboriginal women were vilified, that, that they're, they were visually disruptive to, to the settlers' eyes. And finally, the reader is given clarity devastatingly that these idealised social positions used as the lenses for understanding Aboriginal women Aboriginal women have been disrupted and somewhat hijacked by counter-narratives of prostitution, infanticide, and finally the malevolent, unsightly elderly woman. Mm. I'm wondering... Oh, yes. in, in, the, in the sphere of domesticity, the, the counter-narrative is the fringe dweller um, right. or, the, or the, the incompetent, you know, the incompetent camp lubra. That's the domestic kind of counter-narrative. Mm. Is that to somewhat imply that that the domestic realm is not accessible for the Aboriginal woman or, or that they're forever um, excluded from that realm? Like, Could you explain what that term means, the fringe dweller? Well, I think at that time in the interwar and, uh, and after-war period, there is a kind of construction and, yes, yeah, there's been some good work done on this um, by Jane Lydon around photography, the notion of the fringe dweller. Mm-hmm. And and that is, you know, I mean, it does come from actually much earlier in um, Augustus Earle's images of sort of drunken, squabbling men and women. And that is that, um, you know, that uh, there's a kind of raggedness, there's the, the, the precarity and the impoverishment becomes recast really as a complete domestic incompetence and drunkenness. Mm-hmm. And that's where some of the really nastiest kind of vilification of Aboriginal people starts to happen. Yeah. Right. So, so in in the sense that you're saying that the book um, takes those lenses, European lenses, by which women are perceived, um, uh, you know, 
um, bride, um, homemaker or, or wife, um, mother, um, um, and then elderly through the life cycle, the counter-narrative for the domestic sphere is really the fringe dweller in the camp, Lubra. And in those spheres, um, there's a complete failure, I mean, to, un to, to understand women's economies and women's authority within those economies and mm -hmm. how law, ceremony um, were, you know, deeply enmeshed in them and um, there's just a complete failure to make any sense of, of how women may have made were homemakers themselves and 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 had their had productive economies themselves so um, that's that's a kind of vilification in, in the domestic realm and it turns into this um, this imagery of Aboriginal women as domestic help mm -hmm. um, indentured servants to white women and the, the humor that goes on around the, the their incompetency there that they that they wear men's boots, that they um, that they clear the table by picking up picking up the the carcass of the of the of the turkey directly off the plate rather than the plate underneath it. You know, right. all these jokes, all these sort of jokes go on around this notion of their incompetence. Yeah, it, I'm not no, even sure how to respond to it. Yeah, it's it's so <laughs> emotive. No, in, in it. In a way that is necessary, I think that looking at these images and putting them in the historical context and mm -hmm. sadly being able to see the lineage to the present day, the way in which these jokes or the satirical mm -hmm. or the caricature actually does dip its toes into real life perceptions and the way in which those perceptions impact attitudes at both the individual and the public and governmental public policy level. Oh, um, absolutely. And the Northern Territory intervention completely hinged off notions of domestic women's domestic incompetence, um, women's uh, maternal incompetence, and some some quite new ruptures around um, Aboriginal fathers as paedophiles um, and their and their kind of incompetence as well. Incompetence as breadwinners that goes back a long way, but Aboriginal men as paedophiles that was a completely new. Um, you know, completely new uh, deployment around the discourse that went on around the Northern Territory intervention, and it's a very, very interesting one. I mean, the the the, the stuff around um, Aboriginal husbands as brutal overlords. There really is there's virtually nothing on that being directed to children. Mm -hmm. It's purely around it's purely around their their primitive sort of brutal impulses to women and that's the bride capture trope um there's absolutely zilch around uh aboriginal men's mistreatment of children until the northern territory intervention and it's a really particular rupture and a very 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 effective one it was it's as effective as children overboard and as it, it's as cynical and nasty as that as well mm. Yeah, and, you know, that's interesting as well, the way in which men and women um, were both attacked but in different ways and, and ways in mm -hmm. which the settler imaginary saw were weaknesses for the greater public to, I suppose, justify their own sense of superiority. And I've come across this term of the racial patriarchy in writings of colonial America where mm -hmm. there is this the patriarchy sorry, the patriarchy functions. And within mm. that, there, are ra there is a racial hierarchy which divides 
intersectional identities. So the white male followed by the white woman and then the Aboriginal man followed by the Aboriginal woman, if we were to parallel that to an Australian context. And I think that what is just so fantastic about this book is we can somewhat feel removed from it because it feels so far away and talking about print culture in the day of social media can make it somewhat seem detached from our, our current context. But the book, and you do make a point of this in both your introduction and conclusion, the book is just as necessary for an analysis of our um, settler imaginary as it continues today. Yeah, well, I guess with sharing and liking and linking. Yes. <laughs> That that kind of capacity to 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 reiterate unchallenged is is even more you know is it's it's even more lickety split really and more effective you know Absolutely. tenfold thousandfold yeah well Liz I'm wondering if you can let us know what your next project is after a book like this are you continuing on to further analysis of print culture and what what areas of history are you doing research in in the future. Uh, yeah, I'm staying with print culture because prior to radio, it was really our public sphere. So mm -hmm. it's very, very important and what we can glean from it's pretty profound. And I suppose that does take us back to the very last chapter, maybe just say a few words about the, 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 well, the complete inability to attribute Aboriginal women as we now can and do. And thanks to the generosity of Aboriginal people sharing their knowledge systems with us, but um, the complete failure to um, acknowledge Aboriginal elder women's authority. And so this extraordinarily nasty vilification of Aboriginal women, they just didn't seem to make any sense. I, know, I just don't think that, that white people would see they had any functional reason to be, to be at all. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really the worst kind of, the worst kind of, racial vilification seems to go on around Aboriginal women, women elders and I think that's very descriptive of, um, of a, of a um, disrespect for Aboriginal women but also a, a complete um, inability to acknowledge and credit the, the authority mm -hmm. um, that Aboriginal women elders have. So that's interesting. The next project I'm working on is a project called, it's an ARC Future Fellowship, which I feel very, very blessed to have, and it's called Graphic Encounters, mm -hmm. the Inscription of Aboriginality, and I'm going right back to, um, well, pre-incursion, pre, um, pre pre-exploration pre representations of Aboriginal people in print media, and I'm trying to look everywhere potentially there were imaginings of, of Aboriginal people in China in the 14th century. Who knows? Wow. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm looking at um, there's three parts of the project and the one is that what, what is there, in term, what's out there in terms of a print archive of, of Aboriginal people. So that's engravings, lithographs, metatints, aquatints and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So the first part is what's out there. No one's ever pulled this archive together. The second is where did they go because they were reprinted. So you might have images from the Bodan expedition that I'm now finding in, you know, a, a popular fashion fashion gallery in Italy, you know, in Venice in 1845. The same images just go round and round. And when they do, the people's names get dropped off and wow. that's interesting. Mm. And then the third part of the project is um, how do these images relate to community now? So how do they relate to descendants and whether there's, um, you know, prospects for descendants just to look at the images and reflect on them and interpret them with me and inform 
the analysis that I do, but also whether there's prospects for restitution with with copies of the of these prints. Wow! So that's 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 what the Graphic Encounters um, project is. A lot of people um, might be aware of print collections, private print collections, or people have all kinds of copies of images of Aboriginal people. And so if they're interested to share, I'm very keen to hear about them. Excellent. So where can they contact you or, or even find um, the project themselves to find out a bit more information beyond this podcast? Uh, well, it's just in the beginning stages. I need to set up a website. There is a Facebook page for Graphic Encounters. Excellent. <laughs> uh, yes. And then I guess the next, the, the obvious thing, I mean, there'll be, there'll be a conference at the end of next year, a big international conference. And then the project is actually working towards a traveling exhibition. Um, Yeah, so um, I guess the best thing is to contact me via my email at Latrobe, which is l.connor, C-O-N-O-R, at latrobe.edu.au. I'd love to hear from you. Lots and lots of families have private print collections, and I'm very keen to to get my nose in them. Excellent. Well, Liz, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you, Taylor, for your very creative analysis and questions. It's really interesting to hear your take on the book. Well, it is a phenomenal book. So for everyone out there, there will be a link up on the website for the book. I highly recommend. Okay. Thank you, Taylor.